Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Daryl Andrews, a professional freelance game designer with over 30 board games already released through various publishers. Daryl's company, Evergreen Studio, consults for a variety of game companies on everything from design to licensing. Daryl, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It is awesome having you. I am super pumped about uh, this interview. I was looking forward to it all week. Uh, you know, with the sheer catalog uh, that you have, um, man, you've got to just be a fountain of knowledge. And we're going to try to get into as much as we can uh, in this 30 minutes. I'm sure we're probably going to have to bring you back for a round two, but uh, we'll get into it in the, I guess, whatever we can get through in this 30 minutes. So why don't you start by just telling us how this all began? Sure. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've been pretty uh, blessed with getting to meet some incredible people over the years. And uh, I started off as just a, a you know, a, a fan of games. I was a gamer and uh, grew up even as an only child. I loved games. And whenever my mom would have people over, I would force them to play games with me. And then as I grew up, I continued the hobby and continued uh, an interest in, in board games and strategy games. And um kind of in my uh in my kind of college days i got really into things like Catan and puerto rico and such and then um i started running board game events actually across okay. canada and when running board game events across canada we started to really highlight uh canadian game designers and i first of all didn't know any but i just started researching where are they and who are they and and found out that actually sen fong lim uh, one of the co-designers of a variety of amazing games like Akrotiri yeah. and Belfort and such, uh, lived in my city. At the time, I was living in London, Ontario, Canada, and uh, found out, you know, one of my favorite games was made by someone who lived in my city, and I, I tracked him down. Hopefully not, not wasn't a stalker, but <laughs> but found him, tracked them down, made contact, and, and we started gaming together. And so, uh, I, I started playtesting some of his games and, and eventually he mentored me as part of an organization called the Game Artisans of Canada. Okay. Uh, and they, they mentor, they, they're designers that kind of have apprentices and they come alongside and they help you develop and design your games and encourage and support you along the way. So that was kind of my, my really quick origin story is that's how I started making games. And then Thankfully, I met, uh, you know, more designers through that and through conventions and started meeting publishers and and kind of the rest is history from that. That's crazy. And what was like, did, did was it straight out of school or did you have like a day job before you got into games full time or? Sure. Yeah, no, it was definitely, uh, I joke, like a jobby. Like it was a, it was my hobby that I was also kind of doing on the side. <laughs> jobby. But uh, I did, I did a, a variety of different full-time jobs, uh, anything from, I worked and made like sprinkler systems. I worked in a prison for young wow. offenders. I did a drop-in center at, at a church and was a youth pastor. Uh, I, I've worked at, you know, a variety of things that just kind of uh, pay the bills. And then uh, finding kind of a passion for board games, I always dreamed to transition that. So that was my hope uh, once I kind of found out about this whole industry and slowly, while doing those other jobs, did this kind of in my extra hours and tried to decrease the other things while increasing that. Wow, that's crazy. That's like, you're like a jack of all trades. 
And, and has that informed, do you find your approach to games kind of having all these different jobs that you've done in kind of very different kind of industries or? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I do, I do attribute a lot of the different experiences that I have kind of yeah. have founded me definitely as a designer. I think, I think really like, especially for board game design, I, I, I treat it as kind of three main uh, kind of influences. So it's very much like there's the math side yeah. of it, like very structured that way. And I love math. And then that's the geeky side of me. And then also like a very much, I'm a people person. And so like, I think psychology, my wife's a psychotherapist. So like that whole side of things is very much an influence. And then there's the artists, I think just the creative element of games. And so I've always tried to be creative and the different jobs that I've been in some that there's more space for that than others. But I think those three things really blend together. So with a wife that's a psychotherapist, is she like looking right through you when you're playing a game together? Or yeah, what? oh, absolutely. <laughs> she can definitely, uh, she can read the room real well. So uh, I definitely don't uh, take advantage of her for playtesting. I don't want to burn out, you know, you know, like yeah. your number one playtester. So uh, my, my wife usually only comes in and plays my games once they're really close to being finished. Oh, that's crazy. And then what was the first, like, what was the first big title that, that you, you said to yourself, wow, you know, this, this is, this is for reals now kind of thing. Yeah. I'm my, my very first release game. It was a game called the walled city. Okay. I co-designed that with Steven Sauer. I do a lot of co-design. And uh, once we finally got that out, just the whole process of getting that out really taught us a lot. I mean, it was a long time of like kind of getting the, the ball rolling. I, I feel like once you get your foot in the door and you, kind of got a game or two under your belt, then things really start to kind of really roll forward. But yeah. that first game, especially, there was a lot of no's and a lot of like learning how to get a meeting and and what to say and what not to say and all those kind of things when it came to pitching and, and then even figuring out like when more than one publisher is interested. And so navigating all those waters really was a, a real learning curve. And then even the publisher... Uh, that did it, Mercury Games, really involved us throughout the throughout the process. So that was also really generous of them to help us kind of learn as as they went through the process. They asked us a lot of questions yeah. and involved us, and they didn't have to. I mean, often when you sign your game, you kind of yeah. lose all creative control and trust that a publisher is going to put out something that resembles what you hope. But they were very, uh, very willing to include us. And, and so again learned a lot through through that first game and continued to try to pick up as much as i could along the way so clearly pitching your idea your game is going to become um easier you're gonna get better at it as you go along that first game was there a where is it in a situation where you had a couple different people bidding on the same game or was it kind of one publisher that said you know i'm gonna take a chance on these guys or how did you get that first kind of foot in the door yeah, I I will say I, I I had two super huge advantages uh, that that aren't necessarily typical, but uh, but you can look for something maybe even similar. Uh, one was that because I was part of the Game Artists of Canada, I knew a bunch of designers, and I actually what I did was I participated in a lot of pitches with another designer where I was kind of I jokingly was his wingman, and I just came in and I listened and watched him do his thing. Yeah. And mostly what I would do is I would just like clean up the table or be that extra player or whatnot for what during his pitch. And then I piggybacked at the end and say, Hey, if you're interested in seeing another game with his permission, then I could mention like, Hey, if you want to see one last game and then kind of either pitch my game or schedule a time. So that's how I started was at a few conventions. I did that. 
And thankfully, the game did uh, catch some interest. But even along the way, I learned it's very easy for a publisher to be interested. It's a, a much bigger hurdle to actually get a contract. And yeah. so we we learned, you know, some publishers would say, oh, yeah, yeah, send me that. I'll evaluate that. And that would be six months before we might even hear anything. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you change this, this, and this? We might like it better then. And then you follow it up and they go, oh, no, I didn't really like that idea. And so, like, there was some, you know, disappointments along the way, but you just kept kind of pushing through those no's and hopefully refining the game and getting better at kind of presenting it and, and eventually finding someone who really believes in the game. So, and how many years ago was that, that, that game? Yeah. So the Walt city came out in 2014. 2014. And, uh, okay, we so we kind of worked on that about a, a year in the yeah. process. So six years ago, Kickstarter was still pretty prominent for, um, for, for games. Right. Um, so what led you to the decision at that time? Right. Cause you, everybody reaches this kind of fork on the road that are, that are game designers to say, you know, do I pitch to a publisher? Right. Do I try to find somebody to take the game to take the risk or do I do it myself? And, um, you know, you had to make that call. So how, how did you make that call to go the publisher route versus just saying, you know what, we got something here let's try to do it on Kickstarter ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was really early on and, and I didn't really have a game on Kickstarter until 2017. I think Sagrada was actually my first game that went to Kickstarter. But before yeah. that, um, I always saw it as uh, I didn't think I wanted to wear that many hats. That mm. doing the publishing seemed to tackle on a lot of different areas that I, I said to myself, I could either design a bunch of games or I can work on one game and push it through all those different kind of um, checkpoints and logistics and, you know, warehousing or distribution or figuring out the marketing side or all those kind of pieces um, I was not prepared for. Yeah. And then it wasn't until um, Sagrada was a really positive experience, but that was with another publisher handling all that. Yeah. And then fast forward, actually, just a couple of years ago, I started a, a game company called Maple where mm. I, I was a publisher and I did that for about a year, put out a couple games, had a few other games in the pipeline, um, but decided through that process that, yeah, I'm not a publisher. And so uh, I was thankful again to, you know, try that, but yeah. I probably should have listened to my early self that, that already knew back in 2014 that that was probably not the right fit for me. And it could have went the other way. You could have said, you know what, I, I love this aspect of, uh, of, of, of the industry, right? Cause you really are a mini entrepreneur, right? Like when you, right. you're becoming, it's a business, right? When you're handling the publishing side and you know, you're, you're kind of living the dream now, right? Where you've got kind of the best of all worlds. You get to be the creator of fun stuff yeah, without having to worry about all the non-fun stuff that goes along with that. Right. Sure. Sure. I mean, it definitely, it carries its own pros and cons, but it, it is, uh, I'm thankful right now that I can do what I get to do. So can't complain. So, so Sagrada uh, is a is a great game. I I was uh, just telling the group I was on the live chat uh, earlier today that uh, I was playing that this weekend with my dad. Fun, fun game. Um, what was the inspiration behind that game? Well, what what got you thinking? Okay, this is something I want to kind of put together. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really a two parts uh, answer to that. And sure. Um, it's one because I, I co-designed it with, uh, my good friend, Adrian Adamescu, and, uh, he was the first to come up with kind of the mechanical, 
uh, I would call scaffolding of the game, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the, the structure for it. Um, and it was from, he's, um, for anyone who has met Adrian, Adrian's a very quiet, very keep to himself. He's the math guy. Like that's his passion is like balance. And, and uh, he went through with like a PhD in like chemistry and all these kind of things. And so he, he presented to me early on this one theory that he loved called the five color theorem. And it's okay. the, 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 the simplest way to understand it that most people would, would be aware of it is when you look at postal code maps, you can okay. see that there's no two colors next to each other the same. And so that's okay. based on the same idea of like, you can't have two colors next to each other and it works out kind of in this mathematical way. So when he presented that to me, we started playing around with just the physicality of that. And we really like the tactfulness of the dice. And we really like this idea of not having the same num- the puzzliness of it. Yeah. But we didn't really have the theme. And so that's why I say it's a two part st- story because we worked around with it mechanically, but we also knew it was just really abstract and we weren't really like passionate about that. Yeah. So I ended up getting to go on an incredible trip with my wife uh, where she got to see her job as a psychotherapist in three different countries. And she ended up doing it in um, doing it in Switzerland to start, then Italy. And finally, we ended it in Spain. Uh, and uh, we did two weeks in each place. And the very last three days we had just for vacation and fun. And we went to Barcelona and I visited the Sagrada Familia. So it was kind of like, I describe it as like when you know you're going home and you start thinking about work again, like it's the end of your trip. And I started to kind of start to think about, oh yeah, we got those games that we got to figure out. Like when I get home, I'm going to have to start working on those things. And then when we went to Sagrada, I looked up at the windows and I just saw dice and it was just like, click, well, that's it. And I honestly, when we came back, it was so fast to finish that game because it just flowed out of that. Like we were just like, oh, that's it. Boom, boom, boom. That that's what the tools are. Oh, that's what you know. You're trying to do like creatively. You have some artistic license, but there's some things already built and yada yada. So that just kind of really pushed that, the design to the finish line. It's cool that the publisher um, stuck with it, right? Because I mean, that's a risk you run when you take a game to a publisher and sign over the rights. They could completely reskin it if they want, right? They don't For have sure, to yeah. follow your theme. No, not at all. Exactly. So we we came up with the design and then that theme and then when we pitched it around we actually had um seven different publishers take it for evaluation yeah of course and bounce it back um which like in hindsight is kind of funny because at the time we were just devastated we thought oh i think this is great but it just keeps getting so close to the finish line and then passed back and then finally the reason floodgate saw it wasn't even i wasn't even pitching that game to them I was at a convention. I had a specific game that I was pitching for. They had a game called Vault Wars. And I had a game idea for a follow-up for that game. And before I would pitch it, um, actually, Ben Harkins, the president of Floodgate, his, at the time, girlfriend, now wife, uh, was like, oh, I don't want to play that. Do you have anything light and fun that I can play before we go to before I go to bed? Yeah. And I was like, sure. So I pulled out Sagrada. We played that very quickly. She went to bed. And then the next day, I got a phone call saying, I got to sign that. So wow. if, if if Emily didn't push for another game to play that that evening, who knows what, what might have been. 
it's almost like drifting, uh, you know, runners or, um, you know, cars are behind other cars that kind of keep uh, the speed up by drifting behind another car. You did that on your first game. Sure. <laughs> right? And sure. then, and then here's another example of kind of drifting, right? So maybe that's a new term we can come up with uh, yeah. in terms of game uh, uh, publishing strategies, drifting. Um, so we, we have uh, a few people in the, uh, in the chat box here. I'll just kind of acknowledge them so that they, they know that we, uh, we do see, uh, there's a couple people from game trays, game trays and game trays friends. Um, uh, I'm sure, you know, Noah, um, they are wondering when they're going to see some game trays in, in some of the games that you're doing. Is there some game trays up and coming? That's a great question. Honestly, (laughs) and Noah knows this as well. I want to design a game with Noah because I want to design an awesome game that features the game tray as the game experience. Why don't we Uh, just make the game a game tray? And then that yeah. that's just the entire game is a game tray. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm not, I'm not against this. The game trays are incredible. I I have no problem plugging those because I am always a fan. When I see a Kickstarter and I know that Noah's making some insert, yeah. I know the, the game is going to be that much better. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and I'm looking forward to having some game trays featured in. Oh, we featured some, some today. Games. We gave away a copy of Mike Bruner actually uh, gave away a copy of a queen bee. Yeah. And uh, he's got some game trays in there and uh, they mm-hmm. just look absolutely awesome. Um, and another great question that uh, Mike had kind of, as you're talking about, you know, developing a game or designing a game uh, yourself versus, uh, you know, with someone else, can you talk about the difference that you've experienced, uh, in those two scenarios, one where you're doing it yourself versus that experience of, you know, partnering with somebody? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're very different experiences. Solo design has its pros and cons. I'm a big proponent of, of co-design and, hmm majority of the time I try to co-design, I try to find someone that um, I can riff with, that I can bounce off of. But I think um, just like like musicians, like you can you can find an incredible musician, but you might not kind of jam well together. Yeah. And so there's the same kind of thing that you kind of have to find the chemistry and then even find like if you're productive because you, you, you might be very talented and they might be very talented and it just might not work. So I've thankfully found a few people. And once you've kind of experienced a good thing, mm-hmm. it, you know what you're looking for. Yeah. It's hard to describe. And uh, so for myself, like I've worked with some great people. I, I work with like uh, Erica Bioris and we did Bosque or Adrian and we've done, for instance, uh, Sagrada. Uh, recently, more recently, I've been working with uh, a few other new designers like Justin Aram, I'm having a lot of fun working with Adam Singer, who's was previously on the show. We've been mm-hmm. doing some design work as he's part of Evergreen um, and Sylvain Plant, another uh, kind of legendary game designer in in Ontario. He makes some of the best prototypes anyone has ever seen. So uh, yeah, I just I enjoy finding someone who compliments and also challenges kind of the process. Might ask different questions than I naturally would. And I think that creates a new story that I can tell a, a, a story or an experience. Yeah. But the minute you mix someone in, that combo is going to tell something very different. How do you divvy up the responsibility? So, you know, when you're when you're designing, obviously there's, you know, kind of the wrap the tap back and forth. You're bouncing ideas off each other. Okay, what if we did this? What if we did that? But then when you get kind of past the core ideas, then those ideas got to get put down into something, either physical prototypes, tabletop simulator, you need to create something tangible so you can continue kind of working through the process. So who does that? Is it, do you guys yep. kind of buddy up on that or do you do it? Do they do it? How, how do you work that scenario? Yeah, that's a really great question. Every co-design needs to figure that out for them because it's sure. going to be unique. Uh, for myself, even from designer designer, that kind of morphs. I wear a different hat depending mm-hmm. on who I'm with. 
But I would say that predominantly my role is often uh, focused on pushing the design forward and really thinking through it as a product. Yeah. And so uh, I'm probably more on the fine tuning and more on the mechanic side. And then also uh, when it comes to like the prototyping, I try, I often work with other people that are more talented artistically. <laughs> and so I am not an artist, uh, but I, I think I have a, a pretty good eye. And so um, prototyping often falls to my co-designer to kind of try to flesh it out, yeah. but I'm very decisive and very like, I like this, I don't like that. Um, so as long as they can put up with that, uh, it, it can be really productive. I often also handle all the pitching and like hmm. pre pre uh, COVID, I was at a lot of conventions and would kind of handle that side of it. And then some of the physical prototyping would often be done by my co-designers who maybe don't travel as much. And so that also kind of shares like the load and responsibility there. So you were talking about uh, Evergreen Studio. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about Evergreen and what that's all about and you know, the function, how it's structured? Yeah, Evergreen's a new uh, company that uh, myself, Adam Singer, and Adrian Adamescu started up. Um, and it seems like uh, it kind of took a few steps forward and then COVID came and, and it helped us really assess um, what we want to be as a company. We started literally at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So we were only a couple months in, did the New York Toy Fair, gathered a few clients. Our focus was we don't want to be a publisher, but we want to come alongside publishers and help their games grow help them be better games. And so that might involve development. That might mean uh, designing a game in particular, especially um, we seem to get a lot of interest on IP designs um, okay. because we have some experience there. So either publishers would come with us, come to us with a license or come to us with a game that's already they've signed and they'd like us to refine it or even to consult, to give them, you know, advice on like what's, kind of like the market, what, you know, Kickstarter advice, because we've had some games sure. there. Um, and then um, the last hat that we've kind of taken on is project management. Okay. So we we have done some where companies only have so much bandwidth. And so they have us maybe take on one of the games on their calendar, and we can kind of hire on artists, graphic designers, get things print ready files, and still like check in with them, but really help take something off their load so that they can focus on the other projects that they have. So it's things like uh, licensing. Um, do, do they bring the license to you or do you help them connect to licenses or how does that, how does that typically work? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question because it's kind of evolved. It always yeah. was before this year that whenever I worked with a license, it came from the publisher and it either was a design that they saw and they thought it was adaptable yeah. So they'd kind of have us reskin it or, or change it. Or we've had a few games where they hired us to build it from scratch. So for instance, we just did Titanic that came out in uh, retail in August at like Target and such. We were given that game from scratch, but all along the way we had to keep checking in with, with okay. license holders for approvals. Now, most recently we've actually found that we're starting to have some meetings with licenses directly because of just our previous experiences. And yeah. now we're starting to say, oh, well maybe we can start designing for a specific company and then find the publisher to partner with. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, uh, topic. We've talked about this with, uh, with other guests. And um, I think that's 
probably one of the things that's the most unknown for most people is just how to go about getting connected to a license. But I think the bigger question is, is it even appropriate to get connected right. with a license, right? And I think that's question number one is, okay, do we need a license and all the headaches that might come along with that to do this particular game? Or can we make a good game even without a, without a license, right? Yeah, I, I definitely would personally encourage people, try to design the game without the license if you can. Yeah. And if you want to, present that to some companies that work with licenses and see if they'd be interested or even if that's possible you might find out through those meetings that they've already tried yeah. that some of those things might not even be possible. And then if, if it is a really good fit and you present it, maybe it becomes that, but if it doesn't, you still have a game that you can push forward. That's more like an homage or is more like set in a similar world, mm -hmm. um, but still doesn't kind of like end your game on the train tracks because I've definitely had a few games that I've really focused it on a specific license and found out like that license is never happening. And, you know, all that time, I mean, especially when you get really deep dive into a license, that's not really that adaptable. Yeah. So, you know, then it's just like, oh, well, I made a shelf lot of game, choices I guess, yeah. and it's, yeah, exactly. It's on the shelf. Now that that's not the end of the world because who knows the the world keeps changing. So I can definitely say that I've had games on the shelf that then all of a sudden presented an opportunity years later. So. So what's some advice uh, you would offer for some designers out there who are just starting out, right? So you can look back at kind of your journey to get to where you've, you've got, which is literally living the dream for most people in this industry. What's some advice you give to new developers or new designers that are kind of getting into this for the first time? Sure. Uh, I mean, my biggest, my biggest uh, reason that I was able to do anything was, was networking. I, I think mm. a huge one is get to know other people that are doing what you want to do and learn if you want to do that. <laughs> and uh, I think also like, as you ingrain yourself in the community, as you find ways to support others, you'll find you're kind of building up your, your experience, but your network so that opportunity you can just be attuned to opportunities so um anything from like a huge one was like play testing other people's games like get mm. to know other designers and just offer your time you're going to learn from seeing how they work that's only going to refine your skills more and more as a designer and then and also be generous with that like i i kind of hold the rule of thumb of like if i'm going to have like a four player pl play test i'm going to try to play each of their games as well so that means mm. i'm gonna probably play three games to the one that i table so yeah kind of keeping that in mind to be like you know fair in that regard and then the other one that was huge for me before and and it's a different world now is i i really threw myself into conventions mm. so i i found going and either volunteering at a booth or like even just being like a nice human and like grabbing a drink or grabbing lunch for people goes a long way. Cause then someone's like, Hey, like you're looking out for me as a human, I'm willing to talk to you. So yeah. uh, little things like that, I think go a real long way now that that's changing a bit. And I don't know when we're going to have conventions back, but I I'm sure there are other ways that people can be creative to find ways to support publisher, yeah. find ways to get involved. If that's looking over rule books, if that's, playing tabletop simulator for a publisher or joining their discord. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can really like build up some social cred. Yeah. I'd say if there's anybody listening, if you, if you are not on tabletop simulator yet, 
get on tabletop simulator. It's cost like 20 bucks. Usually when it's on sale or it might even be less uh, to get the, get on your computer and you can play a virtual version of a game. And at least for the foreseeable future, that's where all prototyping and play testing is going to go. Right. Um, at least they'll probably, you know, getting into the summer of this, uh, this coming year. Or so, um, what, what games do you have coming down the path here? So I, I, I kind of heard that you have a, a, a Sagrada, uh, I guess, is it legacy or is that like a part yeah, two or what yeah, is it? I just found out this week that the official title is going to be Sagrada legacy. Uh, oh, Adrian and I have been working on it for about a year and we're really excited because now we're starting to even see the publishers playing around with graphics and art and, and such and starting to really like build out the the prototype to, what can we expect for that what are the big changes for those uh, sagrada I mean, fans out there it's pretty massive it's uh just in short it's a uh, a roll and color so you're gonna roll some dice and then each player has a coloring book yep uh and you're going to color in the windows and that's going to present all kinds of different opportunities because now the windows don't have to be square uh oh yeah and so there's all kinds of uh elements to that because as you progress through the book the windows are going to get harder and they're going to tell different stories also along the way because it's a legacy we're going to have a bunch of different things that unlock when you achieve different things and that's going to present some surprises along the way is there gonna uh, be a one person version of that then too like will there be a, a solo mode or we, we haven't finalized a solo mode it for sure plays two to four um and we're we're wrestling with with if we'll have a solo mode or not but it it definitely has a campaign element to it yeah work through and compare and get different awards depending on how you do from game to game ultimately trying to win like the ultimate campaign of sagrada legacy oh my god i can't wait and then what's the what's the next game you got like what's the next thing coming out from uh yeah well on kickstarter i have a game coming out hopefully end of january maybe february some somewhere in q1 um, and the publisher is Cryptozoic, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited. It's uh, Dark Knight Returns, and so wow, it's, yeah, it's a dream license for me. I'm working with Morgan Dontaville, uh, who is the creative or chief creative officer for Catan. Okay, he, he used to design some games, and he got real busy with Catan, and I, I, uh, I forced him to be my <laughs> co-designer for this because he actually worked for DC for a number of years, and actually is like accredited editor on on books like Batman hush yeah. and, and a few other Batman titles. And so I thought no better person than him to, to work with and give us an excuse to build a game of our dreams. And it's a, it is a one player game. Oh, that's cool. So It's a one player game. We are working on a one versus one mode as well, but it's built at its core. This idea of, if anyone's familiar with dark Knight returns, it's one of my favorite books of this attrition. So you're just constantly getting beat down yeah. And you like survive it. So instead of like leveling up, you're just trying to like survive as this onslaught of mutants and press and cops are getting in your way and you're fighting bosses like Two-Face and, and Billy Berserk and, and oh, Superman cool. and you name it. And it's going to feature some amazing minis. So we're, we're pretty pumped about that. This is like, kind of like for me, like probably my first big um, miniatures Kickstarter. So is the uh is the uh the, the the preview link up yet for for that on kickstarter no they just they just um all they did was they put out uh just like a mailing list and and a, oh, a tweet gosh. so people can sign up for the mailing list and once the the preview's ready in the new year they're they're working away on graphics there is our the reason i say the release date is kind of tentative is because approvals so that's yeah of course 
up in the air part is as they run things through DC and the world of COVID has made approvals even harder for publishers. They just, they hope that everything lines up then. They'll have the design, they'll have the minis, they'll have all that ready, but then they can't show things until until sure. DC gives their, you know, their blessing. Well, once you get that link uh, or even the sign up link, drop it in our, uh, in our Facebook group so people can uh, get on that list and check it out. Oh, that sounds pretty sure. awesome. It's been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, thank uh, you. you know what? Hope we can get you back again for a round two. Uh, holidays Absolutely. are coming up. I wish you all the best uh, to you and your family. And thanks again. You take care. Yeah, thank you. All right. Cheers, man. Ciao. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.